0: I remember buying a gaboon wrapper and this guy came and he picked it out with his hands and I was like are you sure you meant to do that and he was like "Yo, oh, don't worry like it's fine you can see it's super docile.
1: Welcome to
0: From the Ground
1: Up where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well some of you are driving if you're driving keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to a Sunday edition, international edition of From the Ground Up The best podcast. ones,
2: or not the best ones, but you know I love the international <laughs> You're ones. You're so
1: partial to couples and internationals. Yes. That's what it's all about. And we just messed up our camera.
2: I'm partial to couples because they're like us and they're fun, and I'm partial to international. They're like
1: us and they're fun?
2: Yeah, and okay. then internationals is because I like learning about like how other people live and do things.
1: Especially where we're going to go today. If, in South Africa, I mean... Just the plethora is it, of this reptiles. This is our first,
2: uh, it's a new continent. For yeah, us usually we, for... we
1: take it easy and we stay in Europe, but.
2: That's taking it easy? Africa's not easy? Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> no, we just haven't, we haven't ventured <laughs> been, anywhere else. We've
2: done South America.
1: Oh, in, yes. In but Utah. that doesn't count.
2: Why doesn't South America count?
1: Because I think Ray was in the United States when we did it. Plus, he's from America.
2: But we 90% talked about South America, so it counts.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. And, but, we... and, I mean, South America and Central America is, like, that's also, like, our normal conversation. Because most of the dudes that we have on here that have herped, like, they've herped Costa Rica most of the time.
2: True. That's Well, that's what I was thinking of is Costa right. Rica. And then we've talked a lot about Indonesia. Obviously, We've never... Interviewed or done a podcast with someone from Indonesia, which I want to one day, by the way. Um, nope. But we've talked a lot about, but we haven't talked about Africa, like well, at all. We'll get it out of our systems right now. We should do. We should strive to have a podcast every with someone from every continent. <laughs> Except that, that Antarctica. Antarctica. I was about to say Antarctica is never no, going to happen. You,
1: you, we can find a climate scientist to come on <laughs> if we wanted to talk about it. There's, a, okay. there's research bases you, down there.
2: You find that person.
1: Okay, we're on it. Uh, okay. PoorCityPythons.com. If you are interested in t-shirts like the one Melissa is wearing, as That's well as many right? other, check out PoorCityPythons.com. And we have been doing this Facebook Live thing. We do 15 minutes Facebook Live every single day. And we're just talking about what's going on in our hatching season. Since on these podcasts, we typically like to talk to the guests and not talk about our own stuff for too long. Yeah. Therefore, we get kind of our hatching season, all the details of that. We'll be doing that there. I may one time or sometime in the future, I may bundle a bunch of them together and make a podcast out of it. I'm not sure. So if you'd like to hear that, tell me or uh, just check Mm -hmm. us out on the Facebook lives because uh, that's been fun to do. Yeah. And other than that, we Uh, have Patreon.
2: Patreon. Support us on Patreon. As you know, if you support us on Patreon, you get first dibs on our available stinks this season.
1: So animals hatching animals becoming available all that stuff goes on patreon pretty much first
2: yes other than that we will be at Harvard de grace show in Maryland August 10th um there is UK carpet fest August, August 3rd. 3rd there is Western, That is in Birmingham or, is it Birmingham? is that how you say yes. it Birmingham okay and then Southwest carpet fest is in California July 27th at Brian Cuscos at house. Brian Cusco's house Today, <laughs> today, today, we have on our guest, oh, I feel like you say it better.
1: We have Theo Bashau Yes. And he is an MSc student. Zoology. In zoology. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I forgot the At name At the of University
2: of Stellenbosch.
1: Ooh, correct us if we're wrong. Yeah, yeah I got, we got, it. A <laughs> <two>. <laughs> got it. So many new words going on today. Theo, thank you so much for being here. And can you give us a little intro on what you do?
0: Um, Well, I'm, as you said, an MSc student from Stellenbosch. Currently I'm working on geckos and snakes. So I'm looking at basically the patterns of forest living species along the East Coast of South Africa, and then to try and see if there are breaks within um, those species, so genetic breaks, um, and if the breaks are similar um, between the different taxa. So that's essentially what I'm busy with now. Almost done. I'll be done in like next month. I'll be done with my MSC uh, and then it's up to bigger things. I hope.
1: Oh, that's great. And if you guys can hear in the background, <laughs> in South Africa, they ignore the fire alarms apparently. So there's some fire <laughs> alarms going off, but you can still hear them good and clear. So if you're curious about what that is. But so, Theo, how did you get interested in herbs?
0: I will. I mean, I started when I was very small. Since I can remember, I used to go to like reptile parks. Uh, we had a very nice reptile park close to my house or in our place in South Africa. Um, and I used to go there quite often. I used to spend hours walking around the whole place. And then, I mean, when I was about 14, 15, I got my first Bearded Dragon actually. And it just kind of grew from there. Um, then when I went to university, I started getting into more like field herping and things. Um, Try and find as many as I can, obviously. And, you know, initially when I went to university, I wanted to be a vet. Um, And then I decided, no, maybe I'll do like reptile veterinary or something like that. Um, But then the one guy I went to see at at, um, Pretoria, um, he told me he wanted to be a vet. But then he had to spay cats and dogs for about seven years. And I was like, yo, you know what, I'm not doing that. Um, and that's when I started of CSE and you know, I, mean, I haven't looked back since. That's been the best choice.
1: So growing up, I'm, I'm assuming you grew up in South Africa?
0: Uh, yeah, no, I did. I've been here all my life.
1: <laughs> so did you have any like experiences when you were younger with the native wildlife?
0: Um, which kind of experiences? <laughs> well, hopefully the good ones. <laughs> Um, No, well, I mean, if you think about, oh, (laughs) if you think about the native native wildlife, I mean, a lot of people think that we've actually got wild animals walking in the streets and those, but we don't. Um, They're all in the parks. So I did live um, next to a nature reserve when I was a kid. Uh, So the most wildlife we had coming in there was things like porcupines, there's some antelope, and I mean, lots of snakes, lots of reptiles. So obviously love that. Um, but yeah, as a kid growing up, we used to often go to um, like the game reserves, like the Kruger National Park, and things like that. Um, but yeah, other than that, there's not really any too well any exciting stories about um, the wildlife. Yeah.
1: So what is something that when you go out? I mean, what are some of your favorite animals to find?
0: Well, firstly, you always have to find something no one else has found yet. So I'm very competitive like that. <laughs> um, but other than that, I like finding big things. So like the big water monitors, uh, the big cobras, like the Cape Cobras or forest cobras. And I mean, I still haven't actually found a black mamba in the wild. Um, most of the ones I found was while I was working at a lodge. Um, coming into the lodge or, um, on callouts and things. I haven't actually found one just while I was walking out in the field. Um, so I mean, that would be cool to that chase to chase it down and catch it. Um, but yeah, generally, I, I prefer finding the bigger things. Um, yeah, I dunno, it's just, it makes it fun. Yeah.
1: So how did you get into doing call outs?
0: So yeah, growing up in Osprey, there are a lot of, Um, There's a big splitting cobras, a lot of black mambas. Um, And then those guys, they always need someone somewhere to try and catch them. Um, I I did my first quarter, I think it was about 16 or 17. Um, Yeah, and I mean, they they, they just, at that time, they took anybody who could actually catch a snake. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, you'll go and help out. Now it's a bit more tricky, like you need all kinds of permits and things. But I still help out every now and then when I go home, um, when I'm not at university. Um, and most of the call there are either spinning cobras, slotted cobras, or the black bombers.
2: So you have to have a permit now to have a company that goes out and gets these?
0: Yeah, they don't really have a company. It's, um, well, at the moment they do have a company it's called low-filt venom suppliers. You can check them out um, on Facebook and things. Um, but they, they rely on volunteers. Um, to go out, so you have to be trained to get that permit because otherwise you can have any kid uh, like I used to go out and catch the snakes, uh, someone who's not trained and it's a dangerous situation for that person and the people um, whose house the guy's going to and then also the snakes, I mean you get these folks who just buy tongs online and they can damage snakes so quickly so it's important to know what you're doing To um, so you have the proper training and then that permit basically just controls who goes and who doesn't go.
1: How does one get properly trained to handle
2: a black mamba?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so in South Africa, there's there are quite a few companies who do these handling courses. Um, just because we have so many snakes, so I think um, people feel safer if they know how to do it. Um, so you'll see that they all go out, pass, tongs, do these courses. I mean, there are a lot of people attending these courses. And then, I mean, you know, that guy just, there just shows you how to do it, how to handle them safely, um, especially up in the northern parts of the country or along the east coast, up in Tulipoppa and those places. There are a lot of black bombers. So I, think, I feel like those people feel safer if they know how to handle them or if they actually just know someone who can come in and, and take them out.
1: Yeah, so from an outsider's perspective, someone who's never... Definitely never handled a black mamba. It looks like a very fast and intelligent snake. So, I mean, how do you work with an animal like that?
0: I mean, I, I'm at the point where I'll just treat it as another snake. Um, it just comes with experience. But in general, what I've seen is people have this very big stigma around black mambas and how dangerous they are. That's, I mean, I think that a person is 10 times more nervous than the snake. And I've seen if you come and you just go and take the snake out, um, the situation is so much easier. I mean, I, about a year or two, well, a bit more than a year ago, I had a out where I had to catch one in a tree. And I mean, it took us more time to actually just find it in the tree because as soon as you climb the tree on the one side, it moves all the way to the other side, you have to go <laughs> to the other tree, climb up the tree. Um, But once you're in the tree, um, they are actually very inquisitive. So all I had to do, I put my tongs out and the snake actually just came down to investigate what these funny things are in the tree. And I could actually just, well, I grabbed it with the tongs, pulled it closer and I bagged it in the tree and it was as easy as that. Um, So, I mean, if you are calm and you don't pay attention to all these stigmas and things, it is quite easy to do, but um, they are quite nervous. They are very alert, so they'll always be watching you, and they are quite fast, and now it's a big, fast snake. Um, but, yeah, you know, like anything else, um, I mean, just be treated with respect. It's very so easy. Um, and then, yeah, you know, like the bigger things are actually easier to handle than the smaller things. <laughs> I mean, it takes a lot more time for that big snake to come around than a little snake like that.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And spitting cobras, I mean, what kind of, uh, how do you handle those and what are some proper ways to keep yourself safe?
0: Um, so the spitting cobra is the best thing. Well, I mean, cover your eyes. Um, but for those, I've always had the motto like try and get it done as quick as possible. You don't go in there. Um, and you know, when a tong tong tong, hook hook and agitate the snake, um, a lot of times, if you go in there quick, bag the snake or get in quite quickly, you can do it without getting spat. Um, it's once you start irritating the snake again and again, um, that's when they'll start spitting. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the most important thing with them is just to keep your eyes covered. Uh, try to get it done as quick as possible. And then also, well, keep your, mo- your mouth closed or um, covered. So a lot of people have actually developed um, a hypersensitivity to the venom. Um, and you'll see guys, that get spats and they'll start getting rashes uh, and things like that. So it's, it's better for someone like me or the other guys who do the core and stuff, who do it regularly, um, to not be exposed to that venom, to try not inhale it. Um, so it's a good thing to cover your whole face. I mean, it's not always ideal. I, I don't like it. Um, but it, it, it should actually be done.
1: So you have, have you had experiences where you were exposed to a certain degree?
0: Um, I've never been spats in the eyes. So I don't know what that burn is like. Um, they say it's bad, uh, but I have had it in my mouth and on my face and on my skin. They say it's horrible, uh, <laughs> but other than that, there's nothing else. Um, I mean, I also tried photograph. Well, actually, last December I tried to photograph um, them spitting, and that was that was quite challenging because you need to have the right shutter. You need to like get it right at the exact moment it's spitting. So the guys that did the call like I asked them to please pass them my way before we release them. Um, And then I would grab a couple of photos. So there, I had my little brother helping me see him on some of my Instagram posts. Um, He's 11 now, so he's a little kid. So he was my guinea pig. He had a big big plastic lid from the Tupperware thing. Um, And then he ran in front of the snake to get it to spit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you kind of, well, you just work around it. I mean, even like my brother, he, well, he could hide behind things, so he didn't get spat too, too much. But yeah, I mean, that's the most expression you really get. And when
1: you're, when you're photographing something like that, I mean, how do you stay constant of where your hands are, <laughs> the focus of it and everything going on at, at the same time?
0: So those Cobras and things, they, they can be very difficult because initially they, just try and get away. So you have to really try and get them to hurt. But once they once they're standing in the are hurting, um, it's relatively easy. They they could keep that pose for quite a long time. Um, but the worst thing, like for me now, when I photograph, I like thing, looking into the open space with the camera. So now, if I'm alone, my movement is over here all the whole time. So the snake just keeps looking at me. Um, so you have to. Well, I've, sometimes I sometimes have the funniest poses. So I'll be lying down. I'll put my foot out right to the side. I'll move my foot, and then so the snake can look that way. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's just that initial bit to try and get it to sit still and and then look in the right direction. But it's way easier if you have someone helping you um, because then they can distract the snake, make sure the snake looks nice, and then you can just take the photos.
2: Uh, in the chat, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Staren's Wild World said that uh, he forgets to mention he took the most beautiful photo of a spitting cobra ever.
0: Um, I did. So the photo I took was actually <laughs> Uh She asked me to take it. Um, and yeah, it's actually, she's uh, bringing out a book. It should probably be in the book. I hope it made the book. I uh, oh. no, I'm sure it did. Uh, but yeah, so, so that's, that's for that. You'll see, you can go look on her Instagram. I appreciate the link there um, for the book she's bringing up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll link your Instagram below
2: uh, in, speaking of Instagram, in your bio, you say that uh, you, you know your pictures are just from your mobile phone. And for us, people are always so surprised that 98% of our Instagram photos are just from his phone. But his so, are also a lot better
0: than Well, mine, I have to so. ask, what
2: phone are you using? Or like, what are you using to take those pictures?
0: I don't even have the best phone. I've got a Huawei P8 Lite uh, 2017. But the trick about... Um, like, mobile photography is just to get the focus right. Um, so what I, what I would often do is, well, also the angles are quite important. So I'll actually turn my phone upside down. Um, so then you can get most of your photos on the same level as your subject. Um, and then just the most important thing is really the, um, the focus, just to make sure you're not zooming in, um, just moving the phone closer. Um, and you're, I mean, if you nail the focus, then the photo is already 100 times better. And also, I mean, sometimes, or most of the time, actually, I edit them with Snapseed um, just to correct the light because your phone will often just overexpose it or make it super blue and then it just looks rubbish. Yeah. And
1: I, I, I feel really kind of stupid in the way that I try to get as low to the snake as I can but i never thought of just flipping turning it over. the phone
2: upside down we've so, literally never thought of we're like like this like trying to be so low and we could just turn it upside down so life hack <laughs> right there but with you you're always he, he on his phone he has this like pro mode where you can like edit all these things in the middle of taking it and i yeah, feel you like do i feel like too. you wouldn't be able to edit all that upside down
1: well, I'd have to set it all first. And then
2: quickly turn it, but then i feel like, I don't know. But that will but,
1: drastically change my life a little bit. Right.
2: But it's always so interesting how phones view things differently. Like I have an iPhone and he has a Samsung Galaxy or something like that. And pictures look very different on each. Other. Mine is much more blue when you look at it on my phone than on his phone.
0: Yeah, but you see things like that is also the screen. Um, some screens are bluer. Some, so, I mean, that's why I just... I edit them afterwards, make sure it's not as blue. Um, but yeah, I think that's just like the different manufacturers and things. But I actually, I, I prefer the photos on my phone a lot of times more than the camera. Um, I feel like you can, get a, yeah. you can get a lot closer, you can get like better angles. I, mean, I often get people actually asking on my Instagram, um, what lens did you use? And then they get so sad when i tell them it was just my phone.
1: Well, I think everyone who hasn't risen to a certain like skill level in something, they want to think that the reason why they're not at that skill level it's is because of the, of the equipment. They it's don't the... have whatever equipment it takes to do it, when in reality, it's just the act of doing it.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's true. I mean, for Instagram, like the photos aren't even the best quality. Even if you upload from the best camera, the photos, they're not the best. Um, so if you can get the right scene, you get like everything, well, as best as you can, really, all those photos eventually are on the same playing field, um, if I can put it that way. Um, so uh, you don't need the best. You just need to create the best image, really.
1: Yeah, and I guess part of the fun or part of the skill is actually finding the animals. It seems like you have great luck, also finding the
0: animals. <laughs> I mean, that's what it looks like. But that's actually me going on fieldwork, trying to find the species that I'm working on, and all the rest is just catch. Um So I did a lot of field work looking for um, my geckos and my snakes. So I'm working on the blood snakes or the little thread snakes, they're about that big. Um, And then, well, I traveled most of the eastern half of the country. I mean, throughout that range, there are so many different species um, that, I mean, you go out into the field a day and you'll find so many things you aren't actually looking for. But a lot of what I found were actually new species that I haven't seen before. so, I mean, that that's the fun part of doing field work um, and having a target species because you happen to find all these other animals. But eventually, like, if you can't find things, you just end up not even photographing anything because you're just looking for your target species. Um, and, you know, like I said, it can be so difficult sometimes.
1: And how did Instagram come along? Was that just something to like, keep you busy while you're doing field work? Or?
0: Um, I don't know. I can't even remember when I started with Instagram. Uh, but I think it's just kind of came from where like I used to take photos on my phone and then I would now just upload phone photos on Instagram and then like the normal photos that I upload on Facebook every now and then. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just that just well, Instagram is just kind of a way to share the photos that I take on my phone really.
1: Right. And what are you particularly interested in, in like the thread snakes and like little fossorial snakes and crazy stuff like that?
0: Um, No. <laughs> so basically, how my project happened is I started my undergrad. Well, I started working in my supervisor's lab in my second year. So that was about six years ago. And eventually, well, then I started working on these fossorial skinks. I mean, they're that big, they have no legs. Um, I did a lot of genetics on those. And eventually, I published that as my, well, it, was part of my honors project. Published that, and then now, I mean, obviously, I've got the skills now. I learned a lot about that. And then my supervisor got a grant with part of a bigger project, and he asked me um, if I want to join him for MSc, for a masters, because he's got a bursary that he can offer. So initially, I said no. I'm going to take the year off. But then after the year off, um, I'll come back and I'll do that. So. In September that, the next year, um, I joined them on a field trip. And then, basically now, they have, they didn't have anyone working on reptiles yet. And the project had to be something to do with forests. And so then I came up with this project. So um, in this project, or well, along the East Coast, we've got three um, reptiles. So the geckos, called the pondo flat gecko, um, the thread snakes, or the forest thread snake, and then the our black snake. They all kind of have similar distributions. Uh, so that's that's kind of where I came up with the idea to work on them um, to now see if the forest fragmentation along the east coast like with climate change and well past climate change um, resulted in similar patterns um, within these um, species so yeah the threat stakes are very difficult because they're very difficult to identify um, I'm busy writing that that section of my thesis up now. and within the one species that I'm looking at, they are potentially eleven different species. Um, so very difficult to well tell them apart morphologically. Um, yeah, so so I mean they're not they're not easy snakes to work on at, at all.
1: And is that part of I mean their fossorial nature or
0: the yeah, size? So, yeah, so with these fossorial species, I mean with the skinks and things we see the same thing where like the high diversity of them or the genetic diversity is masked by the conservative morphology. and now i mean with those they all blind they, they don't really have eyes they just have these eye spots um they all kind of have very smooth scales and there aren't really any selective factors um if you're living under clouds. so there's not a lot of things driving the difference in morphology. And you'll even see things that are dist- distantly related um, that live underground that eventually start looking the same just because there's kind of one selecting factor. It's to be able to burrow in this world that you're occurring in. Um, so that makes working on them quite tricky. And a lot of people, well, there, there's been a study about, I think it was 2009, where they looked at this group and they saw that they are very different uh, or genetic groups, um, but no one will tackle them again because just for that conservative morphology, you can find genetic species, but then you're not able to describe them because the morphology isn't different.
1: And what does a snake like that eat?:
0: uh, So these actually specialize on uh, the larva of ants. So they go into the um, well, the ant colonies, and they'll seek out the larvae, and they'll feed feed on those. Um, that's predominantly what they feed, or what we know they feed on. Um, I mean, we don't actually know a lot about these snakes, um, but by looking at when some of them that we've dissected and things, that's pretty much all they eat.
2: What's a specialized? Diet, <laughs> just
0: that—that's wild.
2: And
1: can I mean, can the ants actually hurt the snake or kill the snake?
0: They can if they wanted to, I guess. Um, but there's an idea that they possibly masking themselves with the ant scent, or that there's been kind of like an evolutionary arms race where they're able to go in and the, the ants can't detect them. Uh, a lot of the ones that I found. Like once you lift those big rocks, you'll see them sitting right in the ant colony and the ants just ignore them. Um, Some people also have the idea that the snake could actually lay its eggs in the ant colony and then possibly mask the scent, um, mask their own scent or uh, mimic the um, ant scent. So the ants would actually carry that egg and they'll nurse the egg as if it was an ant egg because they've got very similar sizes. But, yeah, there's not a lot of proof of this. It's just kind of a theory going on, and it, it kind of makes sense. Like, I mean, if you're such a small snake, um, and you go into the wrong ant colony, those ants would eat you up so quickly.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, I didn't know that they were oviparous, so what kind of, I mean, that must be a small
0: egg. <laughs> yeah, it is quite a small egg. Yeah, so, and the ones that I've dissected, they had about three or five eggs that they well, three, two, five eggs. And, yeah, I mean, it's very, very small. So in the big ones, it's, well, actually about half the size of, like, a tic-tac. Um, so they're they tiny. No! You know, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: that and is wild. It's, it's kind of funny that, like, the first thing you said is, I like finding the big things, and <laughs> you're cost studying, like, the smallest, smallest things.
0: Thing. Oh, well, no, yeah, I mean, all the people have taken all the projects in the big um, so that, that's the fun part about working on the smaller things, because no one has done it yet. So your findings, a lot of your findings are brand new, um, and no one has seen anything like that before. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it can be quite tedious <laughs> to work on. And then the other snake I work on, the tall black snake, um, that's a big snake. So that's like about a meter, so like just over three foot. Um, and they, they're quite awesome, but they are lot more rare than than the smaller ones. Like you have to do a lot of uh, searching in the forest to try and find them. Are you doing
1: any like radio transmitters or anything like that?
0: Oh, uh, that's the new in thing. But no, no I'm just uh, I just do the genetics. So I'll go into the field, uh, collect some snakes. Um, if it's in a new area, we'll um, euthanize them. Uh, but if it's in an area where I've had many before, I'll just take like a uh, a scale clipping uh, or a tail tip or something like that. And then I look at the genetics on those. So you're looking
1: kind of trying to find morphological differences between different localities of snakes?
0: Um, that Yeah, so I've, I've done that. So there's a lot of voucher specimens as well. Um, but for that, I'm only looking on the little snakes. And it's actually, I wouldn't say it's new, but uh, no one has done it before where I've measured. I um, you know, it was quite a lot of work. I had to measure all those small scales, and those scales are like 0.1 millimetre. So, yeah, it's very, very small, some of of the measurements I did. um, So all of that under the microscope, and now the results actually show that there are actually certain differences between between these groups. Um, So basically what I do is I use the genetics as a backbone um, to try and find the morphological differences between the different populations.
1: great. And do you have do you have any interest in just doing like genetic studies or you know kind of uh, wow, I'm losing the uh, the name for it right now. What? But essentially, you know, um,
2: I have no idea you know create, finding
1: new it. species and creating binomial names and everything like that.
2: So
0: like, is that the way?
2: taxonomy yes yes wow wow okay you should always know that word okay
0: no i mean i i enjoy it um i think i'm just in it because i know how to do it but i'm like i've been thinking of doing a phd and if i do a phd i'll probably go into more ecological things um try and do maybe some behavioral uh on snakes and because i feel like i've kind of going into one direction, but there's still so much more that I could learn. So I enjoy what I'm doing. I want to get experience doing some other things, but I think I might actually come back to doing this. It it is fun. And I mean, when you, I love it, like doing all the analyses, doing the field work, and then finally getting that result um, or finding or getting a tree, and then you see well, all these inter- interesting patterns and then trying to figure out what drove those patterns or why the, why this population is different from this one. Um, but I, I love results. Like <laughs> love just seeing results. It's awesome.
1: So away from the, like, fossorial stuff, what are kind of the environmental pressures that you're seeing that are, you
2: know, all affecting snakes?
0: Right. So the main conclusions that, that I've drawn from all of this is, um, well, historic climate change. So from, like, Let's say the late Miocene, which is about 11 million years ago, um, the world, well, everywhere started getting colder and drier. Uh, So then like habitats like forests would become smaller. So essentially the forest would contract and then you'll have basically two patches of forest. So the snakes in this forest can't get to this one. Um, And then over time, they'll just become different things or this forest might be cooler, and this one might be warmer and wetter. So they'll adapt to different environments. And then, once the forests expand again, and these populations possibly get back to each other, or they've got, or they, you know well, they they connected again. Um, then these species are so different, or these populations are so different that they are actually different species. Um, so that's that's the main thing that I've seen um, in my studies: is that the climate change over time has driven uh, population fragmentation, driven diversification. Um, there aren't really anything else that I, that I could pick up in my analyses. Um, I mean, you I'm actually planning on uh, after my masters for the publications to look at some modeling um, to see how the climate change over time drove the diversification of the populations. But it could be um, like fragmentation of the habitat, even just the climatic variable, like acting directly on the snakes. So. Um, as you know snakes are cold-blooded so they, they rely a lot on the climate that they're in uh, for survival so you might get that one climate flux like, it might be cooler and the other one warmer and then they'll adapt to those different environments so I mean there's yeah you know, most of the things you you come up with um, are very theoretical um, it's very difficult to actually test these. Um, But, you know, with some niche modeling and things, you could actually see um, or try and tell the difference between habitat fragmentation and just different climatic variables.
1: And as far as the climate goes, I mean, you were obviously talking about 11,000 years ago and it cooling, but, you know, short term climate change due to like CO2 or, uh, you know, emissions and stuff like that. I mean, what kind of effect could that have on populations?
0: I mean, it it can have quite a big effect because these snakes they can't disperse very far. So I mean, especially the smaller ones, Um, so they're quite vulnerable to climatic changes. Because now, if let's say in the next well couple hundred or even the next like 50 years, um, it becomes too hot or too dry, those um, forest patches would actually shift higher up um, onto well mountains or into deeper valleys and so on. So then if, if you're a little snake and you're stuck um, where there is no forest anymore because of the habitat changes, um, well, you're either going to have to adapt very quickly, which is unlikely in 50 to 100 years, um, or you're going to go extinct. So, I mean, there's that. But then at the same time, it, it also could drive some diversification. Um, snakes are already in these kind of habitats or pre-adapted to those those habitats. Might actually expand their ranges, um, so yeah, there are there are different levels, um, different things, are for different species or, or species groups are affected. Different um, things like the, the bigger black sack that I'm working on, um, they're able to obviously disperse a lot further than the smaller ones, and they even have larger distribution. So with them, if the forests do actually shift higher up or lower down, or so um those populations are actually to ship able to ship with it and therefore they can mitigate the, the change in climate um it's these things with the very restricted ranges where they aren't able to disperse that are vulnerable to climate change
1: so what would be do you know like the typical range for the black snake what would that be uh what do you mean as far as like back? one individual like At how far movement. would they travel within a given year
0: um i don't know i've actually thought about this um like, I mean even bigger snakes if, if someone's actually worked on that But I don't think they travel too far. I mean, this is just just my idea because in these forest patches a lot of these forest patches are actually very very small um, And they'll they'll basically just stay they they, there. They wouldn't move too fast. So I think I, I can't even give you a size of how far these snakes would move um, But generally the for things though, they don't move too far
1: right and I mean, South Africa, just give us an idea, because, I mean, neither of us have been there. We have no idea. So, I mean, to us, you know, we think Africa is, like, going to be some wild place, but it seems like it's very fragmented uh, oh, where I you don't are. I think
2: that. South Africa is different. <laughs> so, In my head, South Africa is different than the rest of Africa. Yeah, of course. And I don't know. Like, I've always separated that country in my mind than the rest of Africa.
0: Yeah, so South Africa, there are some some wild parts um, that are, well, I would say relatively wild, but it's not as wild as the rest of Africa. Like, I mean, if you go up from like Botswana and you go further north, there are some truly wild areas there um, where like the main road basically goes through a, a game reserve, whereas in South Africa, all our game reserves are kind of closed and fenced in. Um, I also think it's 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 to do with like the population of South Africa. Um, So a lot of these people um, live right on the borders of these parks. If you wouldn't have fences, you'd have a lot of um, wildlife animal or wildlife human conflict. Um, So that's why I think South Africa is best to actually have all these fences and not have everything wild. Um, But yeah, I mean we've got big cities and like and Cape Town. And um, i mean a lot of because um a lot of the guests that I get that come visit they are actually surprised that we do actually have like civilized areas um especially like cape town a lot of a lot of guests come to cape town
1: and what would be like typically people's attitude towards wild animals or you know snakes that they may find in their house or something like that
0: uh you mean like south africans yeah So, I mean, I find this quite funny, a lot of Africans, they, well, they're quite scared, first of all, but they're not used to having these things, and it doesn't make sense, because a lot of our suburbs and things are right on the borders of nature reserves um, and things like that. So, to me, it doesn't make sense, but I grew up with an interest. So, I guess it's just that people, even now, while we have all of these wild areas, they still don't allow themselves to be exposed to the nature of the area. Um, so they don't actually know about, um, well, about the animals that they are finding. Um, so there's just that lack of knowledge. So therefore, a lot of people are scared. There's also a lot of like, cultural beliefs um, with uh, things like frogs, chameleons, and even snakes. So a lot of people that find them um, would just kill them on site. Um, some of them, they wouldn't because they're too scared of what the animal would do. Um, but there are a lot of like old um, beliefs that come into well the way people interact with the wild.
2: So similar, a lot to America. We talk yeah, about especially that a lot. in the
1: southeast. There's a lot of conflict, but people their first reaction is to kill it. To
2: kill it. Um, but what is the community like of people who uh, keep and breed snakes in South Africa?
0: Well, I mean, I'm not too clear up on that, so I. When I was about 14, I used to work in a pet shop, um, selling, well, helping people with uh, snakes and things. And then I was in it for a long time, up until well, I was about 18, 19. When I came to study, I kind of left that, so I'm not part of all those circles. Um, but yeah, you know, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of breeders, there are a lot of people that are into keeping indigenous things, there are a lot of people that are into keeping more exotic species. Um, but uh, I'm not sure how that seems, is going. Um, it seems to be like a separation uh, in South Africa with people who keep things and then people who don't keep things and are more into the field helping and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's not that's not much different from here. We just have like some subtle crossover. And right,
2: there's, there's not much crossover I would feel. But
1: people I feel like are starting to work together more so now than they have in the past and that's kind of something that we like personally in small ways but also the community as a whole are trying to see ourselves as you know responsible and guy. able to coexist with you know say <laughs> academics field herpers you know all the all the different subsets of uh, hurt people basically
0: yeah well i mean even in south africa like between the herpers they are even like <laughs> these little cliques and everyone's always competing with each other to find the best and you'll have your little Group of friends and you'll share all your things and then you'll have the other group that gets jealous about it and they just won't let anyone in this group know where they found anything because these people aren't allowed to find to find those cool things um, so yeah I guess, I guess anyway there's all those politics about, um, that's, and then I mean the field opens they'll, well I'm one of them, um, you get quite bleak when you see um, one of these guys who keep things finding like a rare adder or um, like a cool cobra or something, because then you're like, oh, he's definitely poaching that and selling it to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so there definitely there are all these little groups in, in the Herb community, hmm And
1: oh, I... Sorry, ahead, no, no, you Because go. I'm going to bring it back, because I was just curious, something you said earlier, as far as the cultural beliefs, like what are some cultural beliefs around Herbs? Oh, I should have
0: asked mine. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm... I'm well, I don't know all, all these beliefs too well, um, but I know I know there's a story for well, KZN like, um, that there's a big um, black mamba with like a feather on its head, um, and you can see like when the wind blows over the sugarcane, you can see him slithering over the sugarcane. Um, but there's like an idea that it just started with the wind actually just blowing and blowing the grass, so it looks like a snake. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to come and chew people's beliefs here because I don't know too much about it, so I, so I might get it wrong. Um, but yeah, you know, like things like chameleons, um, there's a there's a big thing about chameleons um, where people are just super frightened about them. Um, I'm not sure exactly what what they believe about that, but yeah, you know, that that's as much as I know. That seems to be the least. Like,
2: like scare him, I don't know.
0: Maybe they don't trust him
1: because they think that they actually change colors like that and blend in. It's, it's,
0: it's got something to do with the, the color-changing ability and, well, the odds that go all over the place. Um, I even once, I was on field work, and there was one crossing the road, so I just quickly stopped my car, jumped out, grabbed the chameleon. And, well, there was a guy next to the road, um, like, he was looking after cattle or something. And um, he came to me, like he chatted with me a bit, and then he saw the chameleon, and he just ran away. Like He, he didn't want to be close to me. So like I think it was maybe about like, 50 meters away from me, and I was like, I was him to come back. Um, and then, well, we, we chatted about it a bit. And, well, eventually, I, like, he asked me for money. So I told him, okay, I'll give him some cash, but then he has to hold the chameleon. And he was just like, no, it's not happening, he's leaving. I still gave him the money, because I felt bad. Um but you know they've got they've got very strong um perception about some of some of the reptiles and things.
2: I'd never guess chameleons could right. ever be intimidating in any sort of way. But people probably feel that about some things that we freak out over, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. We definitely have our own cultural things that scared of
2: What'd you say?
0: They're scared of spiders. Yep. Yes, yes. And this person included. 100%. <laughs> so that's one thing I don't get. Um, you'll get people that will hold the biggest snake. They'll, they're will they not scared of anything, but then you bring the smallest spider and they freak out. Um, so that, that's one thing that I can't that I understand.
1: It's yeah, it's some the... like learned behavior to where we just, for the most part, don't trust spiders. It's
2: the multiple bugs. <laughs> And the weird fuzziness,
1: which is like the same reason why people dislike snakes, though, is because the lack of legs and the seemingly just like
2: the lack of like lack of things shouldn't scare you. Lack of the surplus of things should scare you, <laughs> not the lack. Well, of that's things. your
0: own opinion, I But that's
2: because I'm more to the snakes now at this point. No,
0: yeah, I think it's the whole idea of the legs.
2: Just... Thank <laughs> you, the legs. Anything, yeah. if anyone closes their eyes and you feel like eight things crawling up and you're going to be freaked out. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I must admit that's one thing I hate is to have something walk on me and I can't see what it is or I can't find it. Um but I get over it very quickly. <laughs> um yeah, that, that's that's one thing that I also I don't like that. And then the other thing is slugs, slugs and snails. Um I hate touching slugs and snails. That's the one thing like, I'll find it and I'll just leave it where it is. That's just the idea that
1: uh, grosses me up. Yeah, I went to like a summer camp when I was like a 10-year-old, and we all slept in these lean-tos in the woods. So it's like,
0: Wait,
2: what's it's what's a lean-to?
1: It's, er, it's just something leaned against a tree that makes a shelter that's not even really that effective. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> um, imagine putting a door against a tree and then putting like a tarp over it maybe, but we didn't even have the tarp okay. part. So we all woke up with like slugs on our faces. <sighs> And like kids were screaming and crying. And uh, what slugs. kind
2: of summer camp is this? It well, just you, seems like you can't like let's, control the slugs. That's like naked and afraid. That's just putting you outside. And then like, yeah, <laughs> they had to
1: like check us for ticks and stuff and weird stuff. Yeah. That
2: summer camp did not follow regulations. <laughs> no, that's
1: probably not allowed anymore.
2: No, you don't just put kids outside with a. But I gotta to- agree.
1: Like slugs are kind of <laughs> weird and creepy so and well, I not
0: mean, good for the skin. So. Well you had a good facial there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, or it's like, you know, that some people use the uh like blood blood sucking leeches and stuff like that They're yeah, supposed to help infections or something like I'll that. I'll never touch know.
0: a
2: leech. Not
1: so for
0: like, I have one leech stuck to me once, but I picked out so much I just like flung it off and then afterwards I was quite disappointed. I just didn't just leave it to see what happened. Like, I was young yeah, I think I was about ten years old or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah i've done that and i see it, if you see it like your first reaction is like just Get swipe it off. it off as quick as possible yeah but what are um i'm not really that well versed in the the wildlife in south africa but i think it was a picture of a armadillo lizard is that what the species is called the one that has like the armor plating and they roll
0: up yeah, this is so yeah i found one a couple of well actually yeah, the year, i think um yeah i found those well Secret locality, I can't tell
1: anywhere. <laughs> or you'd have to
0: kill us, right? Huh? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, people poach those things, um, uh, well, quite a lot. So um, we try and not let everyone know exactly where you found those. Um, but, yeah that, that that was quite a cool find. I mean, people love it on Instagram. Well. <laughs> um, no, it's just because they're so unique. And uh, I mean, when they roll up like that, They basically they roll up to protect the soft belly and then they just expose like all those um, well the scales, the armor plating. but once they've actually rolled up into that little ball, it's almost impossible to get them out. Like they just won't let go for anything. (laughs) And so like a lot of them well, I find quite a few. So you just have to leave them there and wait for them to eventually let go and you can try and quickly take some nice photos before it rolls into a ball again.
1: I guess like the kind of the like super herp nerd mentality is like I want to see it in situ because it's easy to get it rolled up. <laughs> but I think like the Instagram thing is like the rolled get up rolled picture up. is gonna get yeah. you like so many more
0: likes. Yeah, yeah. So well that's why I waiting for it. Um, but you know that they actually they they like quite difficult to get out of the crevices. So where I found them, I mean the weather wasn't that great, so they didn't come out. Um, so you'll find lots of them just hiding in the crevices. And then you have to really try like, try and be careful because with them, once they go into the crevice, they actually lift their backs up and they you can't pull them out. So they'll lift their backs up, wedge themselves in, and then take their tail and cover their body with their tail. So you can't even put your finger in and try and pull them out because that tail just wedges in there as well. Um, so I mean, people who go out to look for them, you have to be very careful because sometimes what they will also do is just going deeper and deeper and just wedge themselves in so that they themselves can't get out of the crevices. Um so when, when I went, like I had a noose and I just well, very carefully uh, noosed them around their neck before they got too deep and anything at them out um out of the crevices. Uh so yeah, I mean that that was like that's a super cool find find to get. But yeah, seeing them like properly in situ with like basking and things like that, it can be quite difficult, especially while well, it depends when you go. Because a lot of times they are actually just like in the crevices hiding.
1: And is that an animal that's protected via CITES and isn't, you know, collected and imported?
0: Yeah, so um, all of the girdle visits uh, in South Africa are um, on, on CITES. So you won't be able to, well, I mean, there are some people who actually get them out. I don't know how they manage that. Um, but yeah, it's very, very difficult now to um, export them, um, especially wild-caught ones. So um, there are some captive um, kept, uh, well, girdled lizards um, from the genus smog. Um, so those are the dragon lizards, like the sun gazers and things. And those, if you got them on permit, they're all microchipped. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that's a very st- strictly regulated, um, well, species or group of species or lizards.
1: And is that something that, uh, what's like the general behavior of that animal? And besides the the rock crevices, I mean, what do they eat?
0: Um. Well, I mean, I think these guys just eat pretty much anything <laughs> that's small enough for them to put in their mouth. Uh, but you know, you'll see like where they occur, there's lots of beetles and things like that. Um, so they mostly feed on that. So, like, I'm not too well-versed on the ecology of them. Um, but you know, from what I've seen, these lizards would, Eat pretty much anything they they can fit in their mouths. Um, there are some some groups of them or of these girl lizards that are thought to be omnivorous, so they'll eat like little berries um, and things like that as well. But those would be quite seasonal, like when they are actually fruitful for them to eat.
1: Gotcha.
2: And are there obvious differences between the wild caught ones and the captive ones? Like with ours, or if you've or... had
1: experience with captive ones, right. then captive ones I'm sure are harder to come across.
0: I've, well, I haven't seen um, a lot of captive ones. Uh, there are stories that they haven't been successfully bred in captivity. Um, a lot of the ones that people would, might say are captive bred, they're actually just um, what we call now captive born. So the guys would go out, catch the pregnant female, and then she'll give birth in captivity. And then Oaks would, well sell those as, as captive bred. Um or our uh, captive bread for the sake of CITES paperwork. I mean we can that. A,
1: say that, I don't care. Right.
0: there's scum <laughs> out there. Yeah, I mean you've seen you've probably seen like when people sell things then they'll put like CB uh, next to the name, but they won't say what that actually is. So that's that's where the whole thing of Captain Porn comes from. Um but yeah, you know, in general, like when people keep these the stuff like the armadillo lizards or when they catch them. You can kind of see what population they come from just based on the color. Um, like some of them are more yellow. Some like the one I have, they, they've got these black faces and things. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really, I can't tell if there's a difference between the captive ones and the wild caught ones. I think most of them are just wild caught
1: And are there any ideas on what's affecting their populations?
0: I will. I mean, most of the things that people say is just um, collectors going in to collect them. Because uh, you can, like on a good day, you can collect like almost like 100 visits quite easily if you find the right population. Um, I mean, I know there used to be like big exports over there before they, they got strict with that. I think that's the main thing. I mean, fires and things like that can be can be an issue, like especially in the habits that we have here it's called pain boss. Um, so the habitat should burn roughly every seven years or so. Um, but then if you get like a man-made fire going through those populations too soon, um, then they reckon uh, things like the beetles and, and stuff, there's not food for them, so they, they would be less. But generally, I can't see that that would affect them too much um, because they go and hide in these crevices. And uh, I've got a friend who actually worked on some snakes and we saw that like when a fire comes through that area, um, the rock cover actually prevents, well, mitigates a lot of the, the fire it, that comes through. So it basically buffers out all of that heat. Um, so the animals are generally quite well protected um, in their little premises and things.
1: Yeah, so do you guys do like things like prescribed burns like they do here in the States?
0: They do in some areas. Um, so like in some of the game reserves and things like that. So I'm... Like north in the Kruger Park, um, they would do like section burns, um, but there's like always changing uh, like theories on whether they should be doing that and whether they should just be leaving it for the nature to take care. Because um, I think the last study showed that they were actually burning it too frequently, and then another study would come and say no, they're burning it too little. So this this theory is always changing, and the management plans are always changing because of that. But generally, here yeah, in the Cape, um, I think there are enough natural fires coming through that you don't really burn the side. Um, I think the fires are actually too frequent, and sometimes they they shown that it's actually man-made. Um, so then it's like it takes a lot of work to try and stop these fires because they will wipe out a whole mountain at once, mm-hmm. um, and then they'll get closer to where people are and things. It's very difficult to get them to stop. So I don't think in this region of South Africa they'll um, am things like that, more?
1: Yeah, that's something to wear like when I lived in Colorado and there's a campfire goes awry, and then all of a sudden- The whole know, side of the thing. The whole mountain's on fire, <laughs> and then-
0: and That's pretty much what happens, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then- Oh, I thought you touched me to, to ask a question, but <laughs> as far as uh, hazards besides fire, I mean, what are you dealing with in the field when you're out in the field?
0: Well, me, myself, I don't know, ticks maybe. <laughs> but generally, um, like doing field work in South Africa, a lot of the places you go to, um, I mean, it's, it's quite rural, and I can't speak the languages of those people, and a lot of people live in poverty. So you're always kind of um, like wary of your things and where you are going. Uh, like the one reserve we went to in the Eastern Cape, Uh, We literally, we drove in the Bucky, parked the Bucky, got out for maybe 15 minutes. When we came back to the car, they smashed the windscreen. Well, the windscreen had like protective film, and they were trying to cut through the film uh, to get inside the car. And we were literally, it's in a reserve. We were like, I mean, not not even a couple hundred meters away from the car. And it happened. We didn't even notice that it happened. Um, so that's, it's, it's a sad reality, but that, that's one of the things I fear the most going into the field is where people are. Um, so I always try and go to areas where there aren't people. Um, and unfortunately with my field work, like a lot of those places were actually like right next to communities and things. Um, and some of them are just didn't stop there just because it wasn't safe for me to stop there alone and park the car and walk well 100 meters away from the car to go and sample.
2: Uh, I don't want to get, like, political or anything, but from what I've heard or, like, I've been told there is a big disparity in South Africa between the, the like, high class and the, or the high economic level and the low economic level. Is that true?
0: They say so. <laughs> I mean, you, you, can, you can kind of see it. Um, a lot of the country, it does live in poverty, so you'll drive through, like, the city and then, drive on the side of the city is well, like the slums where you've got like cattle crossing the main road and things. Um, so you do definitely see those big extremes um, in a lot of places in South Africa. Yeah.
2: And I bet that makes it interesting for going out and herping and things like that. Like the more snakes are going to be probably out in the slums, but, well, just
1: like here, the further you go out, the more you have people right. who may not have steady city jobs, which are going to be a whole different socioeconomic, you know,
2: might have guns situation.
1: Shoot you. <laughs> yeah, I guess do they have firearms is a question.
0: Yeah, so You'll actually see in those areas. Um, I've been sampling in some of those those really well, I mean, poor areas, and the wildlife there is basically non-existent. Um, yeah. Just because, I mean, like I said, these people are poor, they don't have money, so they kind of live off the land. And even though it's illegal, they feel like they've got the right to go in and hunt their little antelope or set traps for these antelope. And, I mean, I'm not sure if it's just me not finding things, but you can kind of see a trickle-down effect where these disturbed areas you can't find as much as you would in the really pristine areas or areas that aren't, well... Where there aren't a lot of people actually coming into those forests or natural areas like that.
1: So, is hunting actually illegal in South Africa or just on the game reserves?
0: Um, no, hunting is legal. You have to get a permit um, to do that. Uh, but, yeah, these areas that I'm talking about, it's um, like protected nature reserves. Uh, most of the forests in the country are protected, but you'll still have communities that live right on the forest and go in um, and set their snares and their traps and things. Uh, like the one place I was in the Eastern Cape as well. Um, So I I was actually just going through the forest, and I saw this group of guys, and I thought, okay, no, this is great, I can ask them where I need to go, where I can sample, where they have seen these snakes that I'm looking for. Because generally, if they've seen snakes there before, it's a good place to go and look for them. Um, And as soon as I got closer, these guys just ran away, because they were obviously there illegally. And I, I just wanted to tell them, like, Oh, i come back. Like, I just need some help. Tell me where to go. Car, there, yeah. I'm not going
2: to get you in trouble. <laughs> you
0: know, I, as soon as they heard my father, they just well, dashed off into the bush. And I was like, oh, these oaks were perfect because I mean, they go into the bush the whole time. They know where everything is. Uh, but they didn't give me a chance. <laughs> so, is, is it hard
1: to find like a reliable guide? Um.
0: Okay, well, there are two aspects to this. So I'm also a a field guide, well, I freelance now, so i take tourists into, like, Kruger Park and things like that. Um, So local guides in the areas, um, so if you go to a remote area, like, let's say, St. Lucia or, like, Cozy Bay and those places, um, you can find a local guide from the village. Um, Actually, when I was sampling there, they wouldn't give me a permit to go sample if I didn't bring a local guide with me. And a lot of them actually, they know the area quite well. They know the species that you're looking for and things. They know what you find. Um, but then those are those guides. Then you get guides, um, or kids, I could say, even. They'll finish school. They wonder what to do, and they'll go do a guiding qualification. And now this guy doesn't really have a background of the species. He's just, or the area, or the nature He'll just go in, um, write the qualification, will get the minimum pass requirement, and they will go take tourists into well the game reserves and things. But now, as a tourist, you don't know um, everything. You don't know what really is going on. So you get these guides that go out and they just, I will say, bullshit their way through the, the, the experience. Because um, they'll have an answer for every single question, no matter what they're saying. And at the end of the day, those tourists don't know. So they give a good review, and these guides, they get away from it. So now the boss is happy because the tourists are happy. Um, And it's actually becoming a bit of a problem because now you'll get these um, guides coming into like the private lodges and things, and the lodge will get away with paying the minimum wage because these guys accept it. Um, But then you'll get a guide that stays at the same lodge with the same pay, for many, many years to come no growing. Um, and a lot of the people are quite upset about this because you kind of get away with just like bullshitting your way through um, through guiding and things. So like when I guide, I- I'm quite passionate about sharing real information. And if, if you don't know, tell the people you don't know. Um, but I get really annoyed with hearing people on another vehicle um, just going over and making things up as they go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a big, um, kind of like an issue with the guiding and then like people actually not being able to grow in the industry.
2: And then those tourists go home and they tell their friends and family all that, you know, kind of misinformation and not the true thing. Yeah. It just continues to spread.
0: That, that's true. So, I mean, it's not that everybody just like speaks rubbish because now, You'll also get things where, um, let's say, for example, I'll park my vehicle at a sightseeing, I'll tell my guests things, and then another guy will come in, he'll tell his guests the stories, and then sometimes those stories aren't exactly the same. Um, but now you also need to remember that like where I come from, I have my mentors, my mentors told me stories. I mean, I associated those stories with what I see and I drew my conclusions from that. Then the other guy, he had different experiences. He saw different things. So the stories often vary. I mean, it's not that I'm lying to my people or so, um, but you you can see when someone is just speaking nonsense or just telling the biggest lies. Um, <laughs> actually once had, had the well, same scenario. Um, I parked my vehicle. Now I've seen lines with my guests a few times already and i told them stories about how the lions um, suckle from all the cubs uh, suckle from the same mom so you might have smaller cubs and larger cubs suckling on this on one female while the rest of the females have gone. um and that's kind of what a lot of people think helps the success of lions in the savannah um but now the other guy stopped and he told again another story where um, it's not like a mutual suckling uh, or altruism. It's um, like kind of parasitism where the cubs are actually parasitizing off another femur. Um, and kind of just as he was finished saying that, um, we had the big cub of that size um, and then the little cub all suckling on the same mom. Um, and then like mom, I guess, heard the story, so they kind of had a bit of a chuckle of what was happening. Uh, but yeah, those stories is kind of. I mean, I wouldn't say the guy was lying. Maybe that's what he was taught. But then that's where it comes in, where you need to kind of interpret what you are seeing, um, and not always just stick with what maybe other people told you. Maybe even just go to do a bit of your own research, um, which is quite important. And I think is lacking in a lot of um, guides in South Africa. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And is it as far as the mom goes? Is that because the females hunt, so they just want less females out of the game?
0: Um, what do you mean, so with one suckling and then the rest leaving and so on? Yeah, so so I mean, you'll often get, so when when the moms actually, or well, the female lioness, when I mean, they actually go off hunting, um, it's not that they always leave a female with the cubs. Um, I think it, it might just be those scenarios where the one um, female might have a stronger maternal instinct, so she'll be more like, worried about her cubs. Um, and stay close or come check on them more regularly uh, while the rest are gone. But you'll find sometimes, like things like leopards, I even mean, they can leave their cubs alone for up to like 24 hours um, while they're gone um, looking for meals or they're even just patrolling. And I mean, that's when the cubs are obviously most vulnerable to predators and things. And you'll often see, because now in these um, like the private game reserves, you actually get a chance to see how these animals work because you you can see when the mom left and you can stay with the cubs maybe for a while and you can see how naughty the cubs actually are once the mom is gone and how vulnerable they they become and sometimes it's so surprising that these cubs survive um, while the mom is gone and not able to protect it so I mean what they'll also do is the females would um, sometimes move the cubs or they actually do this quite often uh, move them from one area to the next so that that scent doesn't become too strong in one area to attract predators and things.
1: And as far as tourists go, obviously they're vulnerable. You don't know what you're doing. You <laughs> may not even know the language. So how does, say, if we went over there, how do you protect yourself as far as know. finding a proper guide and everything like that?
0: <laughs> so, I mean, it's not as dangerous as people think. Um, and most of these parks are things that animals are quite used to do, the vehicles. So, if, if you just stay on the vehicle, you, there's no real danger involved um, in that. Obviously, don't get off the car, don't get off the vehicle. Um, but if you stay in the vehicle, um, there's no, there, there aren't really any dangers there. I um, mean, you do sometimes get guests that go by themselves to places like the Guru Park, and they'll get out at the most random places and walk into the bush. Um, I heard actually a story now at the, the conference that I was. Uh, The guy was guiding in Namibia, and I think he was doing uh, some research there. But he had a uniform, and then he came to the one dam, and there were these French, I think they were French French or Italian, I can not remember, girls that were sunbathing there, topless, um, right at the dam in a game reserve. So the big crocodiles, lions and everything, and they're just there sunbathing there with no worries. So those are dangerous situations. Um, So if it comes to Africa, don't go sunbathing topless in the game reserve. Um, But, I mean, if you stick to the rules, you're quite safe.
1: Yeah, I would say if you're listening to this and you're like, you have some, you know a little bit about animals, I don't think you'd be messing around like that.
0: (laughs) Well, you'd hope not. Um... I mean, sometimes these well, people who know animals are the most dangerous to take on safari because they think they know, but they don't actually. Oh, anything I see, I want a pet. So. Yeah, that, well, that, that's the problem. I, I mean, when I did my, um, well, the guiding courses when I took my year off, I was in a lot of trouble because obviously I was catching all the herbs. I was lifting all the rocks, um, and the instructors just weren't having any of that.
1: Yeah, I'm guessing you would probably frown upon just a normal person going flipping rock because you never really know what you'll what you get.
0: Yeah, no, no, I mean, that, that's true. And I, I guess those, those instructors, I don't know who I am or what I, what I know and things like that. Um, I mean, if you're in the middle of the bush, you don't want someone getting attacked by a venomous snake, then that would be the worst scenario.
1: Is there... Um... Like, what is the the infrastructure like as far as when you have a snake bite? I mean, somewhere out there, are you able to get, like, airlifted out and stuff like
0: that? Yeah, so most of um, the game reserves um, or the lodges, like, in remote areas, um, even these, um, well, like, training facilities, they've got um, set protocols of what happens and who you need to phone. Um, and there's a company that's, that runs all of this. Um, so they've got, like, helicopters and things kind of on standby, um, for emergencies, um, like snake bites and things, they, they can, well, help you quite quickly.
1: Do you have a similar thing where, I mean, say in the snakes, it, or say in the snakes, in, in the, the States, 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 if you get, if you get tagged by, uh, you know, some type of pit viper and you need crow fabrics on it's like $20,000 a vial, uh, is it a different situation over there?
0: Um, so, I actually saw on Facebook the other day, someone posted some prices. I think the polyvalent anti goes for about, like, 1,500 rams. So, what's that, like, $100 or something? Uh, so, those are... So, that you can use for the mamba, the cobras, um, puff adder, uh, gaboon markers and things. And then you get the uh, monovalent, um, which is now for... Um, like the worm signs only for the worm site, and that goes, I think it went for about like 10 grand, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly how much it, but yeah, so with a big black bomber bite, um, you would need about like eight vials of polyvalent antivenom, um, so let's say about $800 uh, is just for the antivenom, and then obviously all the doctor's costs and all those things kind of come with it. But
1: that is is really not That's that not terrible. bad. Yeah. Not bad. But how? I mean, how big of a threat are things like mama bites? How often?
0: Um, I'm not sure exactly how often they happen. The, the mama bites, I don't think are as common as things like a stiletto snake. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, it's a very small, well, not very small, but I'm gonna say about that size. A black snake. It's confused with the blind snakes. Um, So you often get people that just pick them up and they think it's harmless but it has a big hinge bang in the back of its mouth that opens up um, and it can keep its mouth closed and tag you while its mouth is closed by just flinging that bang up and i mean with that they don't use anti-venom um, so but they cause a lot of necrosis and tissue damage inside Um, and then you also have the Mozambique spitting cobras a lot of bites from them um and yeah, you know, with those, uh, a lot of people actually get tagged um, while they're sleeping. Uh, so while I was doing um, some of my uh, guiding courses, the one guy uh, got tagged in his bed. So like he got, got tagged on the collarbone and uh, luckily it was a dry bite. So like everybody freaked out and things, but after half an hour so, he didn't have any pain and toxic like, cytotoxic bites. Uh, they meant to burn quite a lot, didn't have any pain or things. They still rushed him to hospital, but he was fine. Um, so yeah, like, I guess that, like, those are some of the more important ones to look after. Mumba bites are generally aren't that, that, that common, but it is important if someone like a mamba or a cape cobra, slaps cobra um, tags you to get to hospital very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I guess that goes with uh, any snake. Any bite. Have you have you gotten the chance to
0: see the lettuce snakes in the wild? Um, I've seen a few of them, but not as common. I just haven't been in the right area to see them. Um, but you do get them where, where I'm from, Nalspray. Um You do get them quite often there. But uh, I haven't seen one maybe for like the last five years or so. I haven't seen one. Uh, it's just because now I've been living in the cave. Um, well, Stellenbosch and Cape Town. So you just don't get them there. Does South Africa have boom as well? Yes, we do. So we've got web slang all the way from the north along the coast down to Cape Town. Um, so yeah, they, they're relatively common. Um, I've only seen about three or four of them in the field. The rest are like such, such call outs and things. Um, but yeah i mean they they are dangerous they drop a drop supposed to be the most venomous snake in south africa um, but the venom is also uh, quite slow acting uh, so they're not as dangerous and they're also super docile um but so but there's also this misconception that because they're so docile and the fangs are back bang, or they are back bang, that you can handle them without having to worry about being attacked but if they want to, they can tag you wherever they can open their mouth. Wide wide. So they say they can tag you on the palm of your hand if they really want to. So it's still not a snake you want to mess with. Wow. So is there like that
1: backwards mentality of just like pick it up kind of thing? Like people will mess with snakes, just something like a boom slang.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: there,
0: <laughs> there are, there are a few, I mean, I'm sure you guys have it as well. The few yeah. <laughs> that, that go out and, well, they just want to show that oh, you just be nice to the snake, and then the snake will be nice to you. You don't have to worry. Um, but I personally have a big issue with those opes. Um I can't stand it because I mean, they say people aren't cheaper than they aren't going to copy you, but people do copy. Uh, I mean, that guy. There was a point in his life where he had to try it for the first time because he had to have seen it somewhere to know how to try it or something like that. Um, so we definitely have those oaks so and we try and like not encourage that behavior. Uh, every now and then, someone will post something on Facebook, and then we'll have the ones full of people we'll be like, no, don't do that, you're an idiot, you're resp- irresponsible. And then the other people that support him, and most of the time, the people that support him don't actually know reptiles uh, or snakes. So they'll think, um, yeah, he knows what he's doing, it's okay. But it really isn't okay. I mean, it's, it's a big risk you take. You don't need to take. Um, it's kind of like handling anything. You can pick up um, something like a brown house snake a um, hundred times, and it doesn't tag you. Uh, most of the times, it does actually tag you. But yeah, it's just an example. You can pick it up, doesn't tag you, and then the one day it tags you. Uh, the same with the, the venomous snakes. I mean, you can do it a hundred times, nothing happens, but then one day you pick up the wrong snake. The snake is in a bad mood. It tags you, and then you. Sit Well, you could almost die, Um, and it's just that risk is not worth
1: it. Yeah, and that's something that if you are told your whole life that something is potentially deadly, unless you saw someone to like to say that that's okay, or to be like, "Oh, he did it first and he survived." Like, why would you ever do that otherwise? Unless you have an example of someone doing it. And still, if you
2: saw someone pick it up and he survived, I still wouldn't touch it
1: your mentality like you should say (laughs) oh that's just an idiot but for some reason that he'll
0: also tell you some facts and stuff and then like oh that guy's an expert Uh,
2: yeah i should Uh. pick it up now
0: so yeah so you see you often get well i wouldn't say often because you don't get this happening everywhere but i mean it would be kids that are inclined to now let's say a kid that's maybe 14 years old using keeping corn snakes like since whenever when i want to try and get into like keeping or um like finding more venomous snakes and then this now unfortunately this guy is his mentor and i mean then he goes into attempting this or trying it and that like i mean that's where the danger comes in is that these people who are free-handed um they kind of act as mentors for kids and often those kids can't for even people who don't know so let's just say not just kids but even people who don't know these guys act as their mentors and then you kind of naturally fall into that, and you while you don't know reptiles or don't know the community, you don't know who is the correct mentor to follow, so you kind of just go with it. Um, I'm an example of that, like when I was a kid, um, like when I used to work in the things, I had a mentor, and I remember buying a Gaboon market, and this guy came and he picked it out with his hands, i was like are you sure you meant to do that and he was like yeah don't worry like it's fine you can see it's super docile and eventually like i came to the point where i realized well this isn't the right mentor for me to be having (laughs) and you kind of learn by learning more um you learn who you should be following and who you shouldn't really be following um uh, there's kind of this idea that i have is you like, you start off with nothing or knowing nothing about anything um, and then you slowly acquire knowledge up until you get to a point where you think you know everything and that, that's where I think a lot of the dangers come to, it. because now you think you're at the top, you think you know everything um, and then you just learn a little bit more and you realize, oh, no way, it's, I was wrong, right. I actually don't know anything, then you get back to the bottom and I think once you get to that point, that's, you can kind of call yourself an expert then, because the point you realize you don't know everything, you surpass knowing everything, then you kind of are, are an expert. In, in my mind, that, that's how I think it works.
1: Absolutely. And, and what that takes, I think, though, is being a self-driven learner as far as doing the research yourself. So say there is a person who trusts their mentor all the way, and then their mentor is that guy. You were enough of a self-learner where you probably did research elsewhere and was like, oh, yeah, this guy, maybe, maybe not the best
0: hold choice. Maybe should have Kaboom back
2: for his, uh, just,
0: that's, you know. that's, that's true. Um, I think it's important in, well, I mean, most of our discussion about the guiding about this, as um, if you have that mentor, you can always go back to the books and see. And then, like, I mean, you should, well, have the guts or be able to ask the guy, well, listen, where, where did you get this? Like, where, where did you get this information? Because it's not what, what I've seen. And... Um, I, I mean, that self-learning thing is a very important aspect with reptiles and, well, in, everything in general, I think.
1: What made um, you go the uh, like academic route rather than the, the private route? <laughs>
0: uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, in South Africa, it's kind of a thing you study or you finish school, you study. Um, and this was kind of just the direction that I went in. Um, I never, like, while I was at school, I never thought I was going to go into a pathology and things. Um, I never really knew. Like, I thought I was going to be a vet, but I think that thought was kind of drilled into me since I was a kid. Where you like animals and then your parents are like, oh, you're going to be a vet one day because you like helping animals. And so that idea kind of stuck up until the point, right, and I'll decide what I'm going to do. And then, like I said, that guy told me, like, you don't want to speak. It's things and things for seven years of your life. Um, and that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to go into, um, well, biology and yeah, I mean, it's, it's been awesome. So yeah, you know, I, I don't regret the decision. Sometimes I think like, Oh yeah, what, what else would I have been doing? And I mean, I, I can't, I can't think of anything else.
2: And what are your plans are after, like after you have completed this degree?
0: So, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I kind of, well, I've actually signed some forms today. I'm really going to be, well, I'm going to be guiding in Dubai for like about a year, eight months to a year. Um, so, that actually starts September. And it's, it's just a short contract. So, it kind of gives me time to think of what I want to do. Uh, but I think after that, I'll probably come back. Um, maybe I'll go somewhere else and I'll look at doing a PhD. Uh but like I said, I want to do something a bit different to the taxonomy or the systematics and things.
1: Going to Dubai is like traveling a thing that you want to do more of and finding herbs all over the place?
0: Um well, yeah. I mean I'm super excited to see the um uh, and the ECOS and things up there. Um so it's the source scale vipers and the horn vipers. Um I mean, they only have about 12 snakes there, so I'm going to find them all. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I'm kind of one of those guys. Wherever I go, I have to find the snakes. I have to find the wildlife there. Um, yeah, there, there aren't a lot of places I want to go, but I, I definitely think Australia is on the list and South America. South America is definitely on the list. Um, so we'll see. After, after the Dubai thing, I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I've got some time to to some time to think about that.
1: And Dubai also screams like uh, gas money and tigers on gold leashes and giant Burmese <laughs> pythons. So sounds fun
0: too. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, my, my idea was that that could be what it is. But I've read some things online and I heard something from some friends and stuff that it isn't as hectic as what they show on social media.
1: Um, you're, you're... a Lamborghini before you know it. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> oh no, well, I hope so actually. <laughs> yeah.
2: Right? That's a nice uh, that's a nice upgrade. <laughs>
1: yep, yeah. they'll just give you one. It up. Where um as far as Dubai goes, um, do you have like living arrangements or do you live in like uh you live in the city or how is all that gonna work? Are you excited?
0: Um, yeah, well, I'm pretty excited just for the new experience. And I'm not sure exactly. Um, I know the company I'm going to, they give me accommodation, and they cover most of anything I need. Um, so that's why like it. It was a great opportunity. I mean, they cover my flights there, they cover accommodation, they, they cover the visas, they sort everything out for me. So basically, I'm just finishing my thesis, um, going home, getting on a plane, going to Dubai, and they don't want to face it when I get there, I guess. That's amazing. So
2: uh, with your degree, you kind of have lots of options. What, I don't know if you know what people typically do with this degree. I feel like in the States, you know, just go work at a zoo. They typically don't feel and Right, guide, right. Yeah. You you get your zoology degree and you go work in a zoo. But like, what is the, you know, in South Africa, what's the common thing that people usually do with this degree? Or is it truly like widespread?
0: It it is widespread. I mean, you can go into anything. So in South Africa, there's um, this idea that well, most universities give you a double major. So like uh, my undergrad is biodiversity and ecology. Um, You go to some of the other universities, it would be zoology and like entomology or something, Um, or botany and zoology. And so it 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 gives you a much broader well, a lot more options uh, of what you could be doing. But a lot of people, they go into uh, research, so pretty much what I'm doing already. um, You could be uh, a researcher at a museum, um, go work at a university, um, you become a lecturer. Um, So those are generally the options that people go to. Some people go into consulting, so you'll be like an environmental consultant or a specialist consultant um, for some of the larger companies, um, and our, our consulting is kind of where the money is at. So if you're doing it for the money, that's what you would, would be doing. Um, but in general, the guys that are really passionate about about their research or the things they are already working on, um, you would end up going to work at a university, so or uh, like a research institution um, where you can focus on the things that you are interested in or your work the researcher
1: and is there any animal as far as uh, whether herps or not if you had the choice of doing anything what would you like to study snakes
0: <laughs> yeah I, I can't i can't think of anything um other than any that species um no like i mean i think with with this field you'll kind of go where the work hasn't been done already um, and what people typically do is they'll go into work that they know or species that they are familiar with. Um, you often see with like the supervisors um, or the professors they'll like maybe have started something in their PhD and then a lot of the work that they do subsequent subsequently that um, is kind of based around um, more or less the things that they started. So like I mean, with the systematics or the, and the taxonomy and things, you, you'll start working on a project and you'll see, okay, there's something interesting there. But it takes years and years and years before you actually get to that. So then you start working on that interesting bit and then you'll find something more that's even more interesting or like a couple more interesting points and then you start focusing on those. and So you just basically build up this whole thing around the tax that you are working on. Um, so that's kind of like why I said I would go into more ecological things. It's just to kind of not steer myself into a direction already and kind of just broaden my horizons in a way um, to look at other things and learn other things of other species and, and stuff like that.
1: It seems like like the job that you have in
0: a way is you get to follow your curiosities in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of these guys like I mean, a lot of guys also go for where there there are potential gaps and where they can find studies and things. But I think a lot of people just go where they've got a hunch and they kind of follow that hunch um, and make something of it. Um, so yeah, like in this field, you are quite kind of free to do whatever you want to do and get into anything you want to get into. Um, and then I mean the only like, thing that holds you back is finding funding. Um, so, like, what people do, kind of what I did for um, my project to get the funding and the bursary and everything, is design my project um, around what the funding body is looking for. Kind of.
1: So, what is typically, because I mean, here I know snake research isn't exactly the most funded uh, area. So, what kind of do you have to like tie it into something bigger?
0: Yeah, so my project forms part of uh, a bigger, so it's called like the Forest Biodiversity Project, or um, it's funded by the National Research Foundation um, and the FBRP, so it's just basically funding bodies. And they would have, say, like um, areas that, that need research or that they are looking to fund. So they'll fund, say, taxonomy um, and then they'll, they'll kind of have, it's like an ad and they'll say, there is like a grant available. So now you apply with um, or like, like a supervisor or principal investigator, we then apply for this grant um, to work on this group with all the criteria of what the funding bodies are looking for.
1: Sweet. And... Can you can you like go wherever you want? Like, would you ever want to do your PhD in like the states or in or Costa other, parts, Rica of or like yeah, or other yeah. parts of Africa? Yeah, uh, or other parts of Africa.
0: I would definitely. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to do it. Like, the ideal would be like Australia or uh, South America, but the problem with that is like trying to find funding and like trying to get in with someone who has funding or something like. That. I think that that's that's always the biggest thing with research. Um, every now and then there are good opportunities that pop up um, where say like um, professors are looking for someone to work on this project um, and then they'll say it's with a full scholarship and well I mean those are the golden golden opportunities that you need to go for. Um, so yeah I mean I'm just gonna now for the, for the next year like kind of keep my eyes open um, to try and find an opportunity like that.
1: I think for us, as well as probably like most of the listeners, Australia is like the, the golden, the yeah, golden place. Like that is really what you shoot for <laughs> to one day, hopefully, get to Australia. What are you so interested in, you know, about Australia in particular?
0: Um, I think well, the thing that I want to see the most is definitely top man. um just because everyone always goes on about how dangerous they are and they. They're so crazy, like venomous, and but like I've got mambas here just to kind of like see the comparison with those. Um, that would be cool, and like I mean, I love monitors, and so like that finding like a big ferreti and things. Like that, that would be awesome. Um, so I think it's mostly like the reptiles that, that kind of got me to like to want to go there. Um, other than that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think like a big saltwater crop would be awesome.
1: <laughs> and not to, ma- I mean, just Australia is so big with so many different kinds of climates and so many different kinds of animals. That yeah. it's like
2: it's like four different places. In order to cover lot, yeah.
1: anything, I mean, it's yeah, all different trips, you know.
0: It's yeah, I and mean, it's I mean, a lot of it is really wild, and I mean, there were so many unique things there. Um, so yeah, I think, like, I mean, if you go there, it won't be a weekend. <laughs> it will be a long time to try and find mm-hmm. everything.
1: Yeah, and you're not just going to go from Brisbane to uh, all the way north to find your jungle carpet and green tree pythons. Like that doesn't happen in a in a week. Or I'm sure uh, I'm sure Eric and Owen may try on their next trip.
0: I mean,
2: everyone there. tries. People try, but I think not that many people are successful. And then
1: the brave, I guess, go into Central Australia and try. No, to- I
0: mean, that would be awesome. Like going into like those truly wild areas where there is pretty much nothing. Um, but, but it's like back on that, we often get um, like well, tourists that come here and then um, they want to see everything so they'll, they'll like, message you I'm in Cape Town, um, where can I find uh, like a black mamba? And like, oh, you don't get black mamba here, like they're all the way north in the country, you go there. Um, so yeah, like, like I mean, in a diverse country like South Africa, it's very difficult to see things. I imagine Australia is pretty much the same thing.
1: Yeah, and something that, I mean, people probably want to hear about and we didn't touch on yet as far as South, South African reptiles go, is uh, African rock pythons. Um, so, yeah, have so, you had encounters? Say, say again? Have you had encounters with any uh, African rock pythons?
0: Yeah, so, so where I'm from, um, you get them quite often. Um, and they are yeah, now the ones where we are, it's called the Southern African python, So it's uh, python lenses. African rock python is Python Seabay, which is way north. Um, so they split those into different species quite a while ago, I think. Um, but yeah, I've I've got them, well, little ones like this in my, in my house, and then well, the big ones. I think the biggest one I caught was just under four meters. Um so yeah, I've seen seen them quite often. And then um, like my mom's got like a little plot or farm kind of set up where she's got horses. And the guy who works there, he often sees a big python. That's all I get from his big python. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so they showed me where it was and things. And then I actually found the droppings of the python. I mean, I think the dropping was about that size. And then in it were the set of horns of a clip springer. So it's, a, it's an antelope. I mean, that antelope is probably about that big. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so so they they get super big and they they're right there in the town, um, and people just don't don't see them that often. Uh, so it's actually amazing how the, how they can survive like, in well, kind of like semi-urban environment.
1: So it's it's kind of a snake that I guess by its nature has worked alongside humans, even though it's huge, <laughs> and like you would think it would it wouldn't be able to hide very well.
0: Yeah, so, but, you know, so that's a place like Nilesburg where there are patches of natural habitat um, and it's surrounded by natural areas. But then you get things, well, back to the Eastern Cape um, where there was actually a population that they think is completely wiped out by people. Um, so people do um, hunt them um, for meat and um, there was actually one on Facebook I saw, um, well, in this week, um, where friends of mine uh, posted a thing where the guy got given the python at a pet shop and one of these, well, we call them witch doctors, uh, or Sangoma, um, offered the guy like 18,000 rand um, for the python because then they'll take that python and then sell bits of it for cures, for all kinds of things, and he'll make even more money uh, from that python. You'll even see at the pet shops, like while, while I used to work at the pet shop, these guys would come into the pet shop and they'll want to get um, hold of these partners and most of the time we just um, try and not sell it to them um, even though like the boss I had, he could have been quite unethical like he wouldn't care um, but we would try not to sell it because they're, they're, they're often a lot of money just for those partners um, so I mean through that um, in the natural environment those partners were um, kind of wiped out like places like Eastern Cape.
1: And. Are those witch doctors? I mean, is that an issue as far as a, do they also like cure snake bite and stuff like that when you're envenomated?
0: Yes, they do. There they are all kinds of stories um, of what cures snake bites. Um, I remember once one of my friends, he lives actually up the road from me. He phoned me, he said, my garden has been bitten by a snake. Um, so I asked him, like, explain the snake, explain the situation. And he tells me, no, the snake is this big. Um... He saw it, so he punched the snake, and then the snake bit him. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I, I didn't buy the story, but but he's adamant. He punched the snake, and when he punched the snake, the snake bit him, and this guy was, like, frozen. He couldn't walk, and, um, and he, like, he couldn't even speak. That That's in how much shock he was. And he just wanted to go to the supermarket to buy, um, like, I think it's magnesium or something, these little metal things that he must drink in the woods I'm not sure what it's called um and then he'll be cured uh, that that was these things so we went like um we went to the hospital with him initially and like he just said no he doesn't want be a doesn't want be uh, he just wants to go to the shop just to buy these things then he'll be fine um, so eventually but now like I was about 18 years old I didn't know too much about like being in shock and things uh, but then the guy's mom came home and they took him to the hospital, just gave him some pills, and was fine. Um, so I think he was never tagged by the snake. Um, I think he just got got like well, like a branch or something just snapped in <laughs> um, But yeah, so, so there are like all kinds of funny stories um, about how to cure these snake bites and things. Um, but, yeah, I think it's crazy.
1: <laughs> Generally, uh, it's not the same defense you can take against a uh, shark or anything. You don't punch <laughs> it in the nose to get a snake away. Yeah, don't punch it. <laughs> That's snakes. probably exposing yourself.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, I've heard some funny stories of the way that, you know, people would kill snakes. Um, like, I mean, some people spray them with, like, doom, um, like, like, insect repellent or insect <laughs> and. Yeah, I and mean, they also all these like stories about how to keep them away. Like yeah, if you have to use like all these clean chemicals and you plant prod, these plants in your house, and then the snakes will be gone. Um, but yeah, obviously none of those things work.
1: My favorite is they sell this like snake repellent for Western Diamondback rattlesnakes, and like predominantly in the south. And then there's all these pictures of like an atrox on top of the bag of repellent oh, and stuff like that. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, so people we, still buy
0: it. Yeah, I know we've got the same thing in South Africa. So there was Adam's car, scar. Um, it was actually a bit of a joke, like on Facebook. So he had this like snake repellent company that comes to your house and they'll spray your whole house for a certain amount of money, and then they guarantee for the next year you won't have another snake in your house. Um, but now, what's the chance of you finding another snake in your house? Like, how often do you find a snake in, house? in your house? Uh, right. But then, if there is another snake in your house, they'll come and then we spray your house for free. <laughs> um, so, 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 so this was the, the thing. But you know, none of those repellents works. I mean, you can find a snake. You can spray that repellent around it as much as you want. It's just going to go straight over. Um, the best way, obviously, to keep your house snake free is keep your house clean. Um, so, because I mean, obviously, the rats and things come. And if they're not there, there won't be snakes.
1: You're like, I wonder why there's snakes here. There's just like all this scrap wood in my backyard hanging out.
0: You're, you'll be surprised. Um, I had a call out in Stellenbosch um, and the lady told me, oh, they've never seen snakes here. Like in like all the years they've been living here, there's never been a snake, but the house was just so dirty and there were like rat droppings all over the kitchen. And she told me, no, it's under the stove. Like, when I got under the stove, there was, like, a whole rat nest, like, (laughs) under the stove. And now they ask me like, how do you keep it away?" But, like, I mean, I'll tell them keep it clean. But it kind of feels like I'm insulting these people because the house is so dirty. But then I was like, how are you surprised that you have steaks? You've got rats. Like, maybe get rid of the rats. Like, that that would be a problem in the kitchen. You have have an
1: all-you-can-eat buffet buffet under your sink and stove. Like, (laughs) What do you
0: expect? Yo, that house was so cluttered I couldn't even find the snake.
2: Do you ever, I mean, I'm sure you have, get the call like, it's venomous, it's the scariest snake in the world or whatever, and then it's just this It's little...
1: like a 12-inch house snake or something.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Um, I get those, you get them quite often. Um, I mean, I don't do too many calls, but you do get them from time to time. Um, the best was now, uh, December, that past was home. So... Uh, my friend phones me, uh, Chris, from the um, Venom Supplies, or local Venom Supplies, he, he tells me um, they've got a spotted bush snake at the hospital. Um, so I, I, I was on my way there, so I go past uh, the hospital and stop there. But I just go in with a pillowcase, because um, I think, okay, I'm just going to find this thing. Spotted bush snake is a small, like, little green snake. is harmless. Um, so I walk in there. So the, well, the nurse, I think, at the front she tells me, yo, the kid saw it, but the kid is in surgery now. Um, but yo, he said it was a green snake. It just went up the tree after a lizard. Um, but then she's like, yo, but are you sure you're capable of catching it? So I'm like, yo, I'm going to put a case. Like, don't worry. Because um, we know the, the common green snake there is a spotted bush. Uh, she's like, yo, but the kid said it's three meters. So I'm like, okay, well, the kid obviously over-exaggerated. <laughs> So I walk around like to the window where the kids saw the little green snake and like, I look in the tree and there's a huge black mamba like I think <laughs> I it was like 2.6 meters or something like that like it was big um, and yeah I mean then I obviously walked so I was like you know, I'm not capable of catching it I need to go back to the car and then I, well, I got my, my tongs and things and yeah then i mean it was obviously a big show because i have to climb the tree like at the window and everyone is freaking out like everyone just closing their windows because now there's this huge snake uh, but yeah i mean i got it quite quickly and i uh, removed it there so i mean you often like on these callouts, like people will give you a description and then it's just nothing like they describe. um or like the embarrassing ones always when like the lady would phone you she's freaked out um there's this huge snake like in my shed blah, blah, blah. And then you go there and you remove the box and it's this a little snake. And she's like, no, it was bigger. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't bigger. <laughs> but I guess either way, you got to be prepared
1: whether they for say it's a way, small though. snake and it's a giant snake or big snake, little yeah, snake, venomous, I not mean, venomous.
0: I normally take it like, I mean, I'm open for anything when I get there. I don't often listen. Well, I do listen, but I don't often really pay too much attention. I mean, there was one call out in uh, Stellenbosch Life you know, we would tell me there's a python in my garden. And so I was like, You don't get pythons in Stellenbosch and Cape Town. Um, so it must be a puff header. Um, so I go prepared for the puff header. And there's this huge boa constrictor. So it's obviously someone's escaped bed. Um, but it's like on a farm, like far from any towns and things. So I don't know how it got there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, i got that and that's my brother's pet
2: now. Repurpose it. Um, we've talked a lot about like poaching and people getting things from the wild and kind of the issues with that. Is there any sort of like organization or governing body that's working to change the laws or anything like that for reptiles and native species?
0: I mean, different provinces have their own rules and their own um, regulations, and they enforce things differently. So like here where we are, you need permits for everything like um, indigenous, exotic. Um, But then if you go to uh, KZN, there you can keep indigenous things without permits. So um, what often happens is people would collect something somewhere, like wherever, take it to KZN, send it from KZN to Joburg um, via the right channels, because now you can legally keep it in KZN without um, without permits and things. So you can send it to Joburg via the right channels, get a transport permit, and then automatically that animal becomes a legal animal. Um, so now they, they've got all these rules, but then enforcing it um, becomes a bit tricky because a lot of the people that do these, um, that go and check your house and stuff, they don't know the species that you have. They don't know the reptiles. Um, even when I applied for sampling permits in some of the places, they'll just give me a permit for a gecko, and then I'm like, this isn't the right species of gecko that I applied for. Um, so that that is a is a bit of a problem, like enforcing those rules on, well, the reptiles and keeping them and stuff. Um, even though in some areas, they, they are quite strict, but there's always these loopholes of how to get through.
1: Absolutely. And is it a... Uh, as far as like things like invasives, like obviously there's a boa constrictor out and it seems like, you know, you have pretty decent habitat for a lot of different species of snakes. Are there any uh, invasive species in South Africa?
0: <laughs> no, not really. Um, they are like the regular sliders. Um, little, little terraphones, you can find them um, in Durban, in some ponds. Um, apparently there are some in Joburg, but I'm not too sure. And that, That's pretty much, as far as I know, the only real invasive, it's not even invasive, it's just an exotic species that found a way to live there. Because um, now in South Africa, like the boa that came out in Cape Town, one winter year will remove it very, very quickly. I mean, it gets super cold here. Uh, but then, if you go up north uh, to like Pope and Malangia, where I'm from, um, there the climate is a bit better, so one that gets out there could survive for a lot longer. Um, but I don't think um, we have we really have any invasive uh, reptiles like no. in Florida. That's ridiculous. But yeah, you know, they, they are they are scared of it. They are. They do prevent it or they, they try and prevent it by implementing new laws. So there, there is a law now that you can't um, keep boas without the right permits. I don't, I don't think you're allowed to import them even anymore. Um, so th- that is a bit of a, a bit of an issue that, that's going forward because obviously a lot of people have these things. But personally, I don't think um, they would actually be able to escape and establish themselves um, in well South Africa. Uh, there are people that think that you are know, some of the areas like, well, Durban, Joburg, with a lot of keepers. Um, when those snakes escape, they're going to be able to breed because the climate is right and stuff. But that's yet to be proven.
1: Yeah,
2: that I was just about to ask. Like, are the import-export laws very strict from South Africa?
0: I think it's like, like I said, I, I'm not too sure about the, um, the like captive breeding and things like that but I think it is relatively easy if you know the right people like for instance if you know people who have done it before um, who already know the channels and I think it can be quite easy I know there are people that export um, like I said those girdle lizards um, some of our comedians and things they've managed to legally export um, all of these species but you see the problem with that also is they'll say it's this species but then they'll export five other different species um, with those. And then who's going to know that it's not five species? It's the you see, So so there's there's that problem. So I think like anywhere, like, I mean, keepers or people that export, they're always going to find a way to, to jump over the system. I mean, for me now, if I had to try and send you guys, something, I wouldn't know what to do. Like, I'll probably be rejected with my first application. <laughs> Uh, But then if if you meet someone who knows how to do it or who has done it before, um, I think it can be quite easy.
1: Yeah, I believe there's uh, Bushfeld Reptiles who does, uh, they do house snakes and they send over here and then they have like an agent that sends out snakes over here. And then I know there's like a big ball python breeder in South Africa who... I mean, mm-hmm. it's just crazy that we are taking um, an African species yeah, and breeding it. it here, and then and exporting. Then it, back, it
0: I mean, back. a different part of Africa, but still. But still. <laughs> yeah, but you see, like things like the exotics, it's it's relatively easy to to get them centered on. It's just mm-hmm. once they they on the invasive species list that it becomes quite difficult. Obviously, if they're um, listed, then it's quite difficult to get them around.
1: Yeah, and I. Is there is there any like uh conservation efforts mm. or cooperation between, you know, private hobbyists, stuff like that? Or do you have you seen anything?
0: No, not that not that I really know. Like like you mean like captive breeding and things like that. Like captive or, breeding
1: programs, stuff like that.
0: Um, no, not, there there is a guy in um I think it's Neisner. So like along the coast, like in the Cape where he thinks he's breeding these chameleons to repopulate the wild populations and things. Um, and like people are commending him for that, but other than that, they aren't really, not that I know of, um, people that use captive breeding or things to repopulate wild areas. I think a lot of those things are just like, we call it like citizens, or not citizens, suicides actually, um, mm-hmm. where guys do their own little projects um, where they'll try and breed as much as they can and release it, and they think they're repopulating, but actually, I mean, what that guy's doing is so little, and it might actually have a negative effect um, on the natural populations because now you bring—I mean, this guy that's breeding these things—he probably has a lot of corn snakes and all these other things at home, so it's possible to well take all those pathogens and release it into the natural environment, and then you potentially also just releasing a lot of inbred individuals. Um, into a natural environment you're Um, also
1: releasing you know animals that were kept in a much more sterile environment to the wild where they're going to catch the other pathogens and
0: and the chances of those uh, animals actually surviving is so small um i mean there's a lot of studies on translocating snakes and reptiles that have shown that you move like i mean a clutch of rattlesnakes like 250 meters away from where they were caught or something and but more than 50 percent of them die. so I mean, there's all these aspects. Is even like the guys who do these um call outs, uh, the, the theory is that you shouldn't be removed or moving those snakes more than a couple hundred meters. And a lot of these guys they go in and they catch these snakes and they think, I'm going to take it to the closest reserve like 20 k's down the road. There's no people, there's, there's nothing there to harm it, so the snake's going to be fine. Answers are that snake is actually just going to die. Um, so I mean, when you do call out the best thing is actually just to release it in the neighbor's garden. Uh, but obviously, we would, we don't want to do that because the neighbor might find it. Uh, but that's in, in theory for, for the ecology or for the species or the animal itself. It's really best to just release that snake as close as possible to where you found it. Um, I mean, that's like sometimes you find these.
1: How did we possibly
2: Oh, did we pause lose him?
1: After two hours. It's literally been two hours, but we can't end this with some grace, damn it. Oh,
2: he's back. He's oh, back. he's back. Maybe.
1: Maybe not. Yeah, Maybe. I think it's I think it's always an interesting topic when we talk about people who think that they're going to get into the private side of the hobby and help conservation.
2: And they're actually hurting which, it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's just no proper way to, uh, you're never going to re-release an animal from your private collection. No. But I think I mean maybe what we can do is make a make a dent in say things that are very popular uh, exports. You know things that are exploited. You know your your things that are coming in in mass to where we can just say, hey, we have a population here in the United States in captivity. No need to keep on right exporting these animals and even though they're captive born or captive bred, supposedly, you know, only a certain amount of those animals Actually. hold true to that. Mm-hmm. And so that's really like, there's no way to, uh, to unfortunate. I mean, I wish there was a way, but no one's controlling us. We're just, right. we just have animals. It's, in oh, tubs, it's just uh, going
2: to be impossible to ever like keep tabs on right. everyone who's doing things. And you just hope that the, good, not necessarily good people, but people that are doing right by the animals outweigh the people that are, you know, hurting it. Right. And everything. Oh, he's completely
1: gone. So hopefully you can just message him and ask him to follow the link again so we could do an outro. I
2: was just expecting him to (laughs) message us. But I think it's...
1: Oh, he's coming back, I think. I think it's just super, uh, I don't know, we're always interested on how they... uh,
2: The similarities. I think. I wasn't expecting so many similarities. It's pretty much like exactly the same,
1: right? right like, a there's a
2: lot of similarities between us in South Africa. And I don't know. Yeah. There's lots of times whenever we have international guests, there's a lot of similarities. And I don't expect it. I expect it to like vastly different. Now, one thing we didn't talk about with him is like, but he. it's also hard because he's not in the captive world, but like shows or anything, I would guess that is very different. I'm thinking there's not reptile shows like we have here.
1: Maybe like Cape Town. Maybe there's, you know. Uh, probably in the that's just
2: my guess. But yeah, yeah I, know. I truly have no idea.
1: Um, we have to have uh, someone on the captive side as well. In from South, South Africa. Africa. Yes.
2: Or maybe we, I would be interested. His friend who works for the Venom Supply. I bet uh, you people, that guy. That would be very interesting. Has a lot of, of stories. stories. <laughs> <laughs> we love good stories. Um, so we'll definitely after this podcast have to reach out to Theo and be like, Hey, look us up
1: yeah yeah because i mean you could only imagine with years of experience doing that every single day
2: it's like i mean
1: wait. and you and ways. i guess like you're dispatching people to do it as well so it's not even just you going out and doing it it's other people coming back with crazy stories as well right but um it's also just fascinating the fact that you know, we couldn't think of a more crazy thing than like finding a black mamba and having to move it around. So, uh, and it seems probably very routine to, For him, <laughs> to those people. Right. Right?
2: And it just, it's so funny to me how he was like, oh, yeah, there's like kids doing call outs and being field guards. I mean, stuff. Even, I don't, now that even is like different. Theo
1: was a kid. That is, of, when di- he
2: that's one thing that's different. You're not going to see a 13 year old, you know, getting calls a K well Will you come get the snake out of my yard? I mean, maybe in some parts of America not any part i know and definitely not being a field guide in any sort of way
1: i mean it's hard to even find that many kids that young who are interested in stuff like that rather than uh you know playing video games and people and don't hanging out which is people don't respect kids <laughs> yeah i mean you always think of like the most uh the people that get the least uh respect i guess is the uh, you know younger kids teenagers stuff like that and They can, they're trying their best, but they never really get the, uh, the respect for their efforts. Cause obviously you need a you know, it takes time to build that, but.
2: Okay. So he said the connection cut out and he says he's back on, but it's, I see him.
1: Well, I see see the avatar. Yeah.
2: We see the blue icon. Just tell him to
1: keep on talking or saying something so that we know when he's here. (laughs) um but i mean i would love to get uh like bush reptiles i should uh, i should reach out to the i'm not sure what his name is i wish i knew his name so the the ball python guy that i'm thinking of in in south africa um even though it's you know it's ball pythons and it's something that we don't it is kind of weird that we don't cover ball pythons i, I still want to do like a few ball python shows every year but um but just learn about how that is taken off and how the market works in comparison to
2: uh oh he's gone again sorry
1: yeah how the just how the market works in comparison money wise you know like if more because it's weird it's if so, you're yeah. if you're importing from like justin Cabell. like we started off with one pastel one normal breed it and then you built on over like 15 years then we started getting crazy over there, it's like you have the the keys to the kingdom. You know, you get, hey, Justin Kabalka give me the, uh, I have $50,000. I want the best projects. Mm-hmm. And you you start from the top. And so I think that's interesting and in how that affects, uh, how that would affect that market in comparison to one that's mature like ours and came kind of from the ground up. Yeah, that's weird that he's just coming up as an icon.
2: I know, and I kept trying to show him like what it what we see but then he goes away when i try to connect when i try, oh, oh there you there he are. is yeah <laughs> took a couple tries to come back but you could you did no, it
0: I'm back, I'm back. yeah i know the connection cut out so now i'm on my on my phone and okay it's working <laughs> yeah i mean five minutes
1: pretty much before we're about to do an outro and so
2: <laughs> but hey we got the main meat of it i don't even remember what did what was he saying when it cut out What were we talking about? I
0: already forgot.
2: Talking about you should. I have no idea because I just
0: started rambling. We started rambling, right? Um, uh, It was about reptiles, import, export, uh, something like
2: that. uh, Theo, someone wanted to reach out to you. What? Oh, I wanted to ask one more closing question before we do that. Okay, ask your
1: question. Is there any animal or herp in South Africa that? you have been looking for, hope to see, but you have not gotten to see yet?
0: Oh, no, I'm going to look like a noob to the people who have seen it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the things that everything, everybody's chasing uh, is kind of the dwarf adders. Uh, so, um, I mean, there's like the Albany adders, the Desert Mountain adders. Well, I've seen that one. Um, so I think those are kind of the big ones that people want to see and then there's a really big one um you get it in Lesotho um, in the Drakensberg um it's the cream-spotted mountain snake so um basically that one i think there's like five records of it um that anyone has ever seen um so i think one day uh, when i find that one i'll be a very very happy guy that- I never
2: even heard of a cream-spotted mountain snake but now yeah, we have to look it at it. So you can, yeah,
0: you can, I think that's, that's the common name. I am not. I don't always get the common names right.
2: Is um, it, how do you say it, Montaspis? Oh,
0: Montaspis, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it looks like, yeah, uh, it's a black snake. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, it doesn't look like much, but that's, that's certainly um, one of the top goals. A lot of people have gone to try and find it, and they just can't get it, so I think... I think that, like, I mean, i want all about the snakes. The other reptiles are cool, but, like, I like finding snakes. I mean, and you always want to find something that no one else has found. Uh, so that is definitely the top goal to one day get it.
1: Yeah, it's fun to see the fact that um, it doesn't always matter what the animal looks like. It can have to do with just the rarity of the animal itself. Yeah.
0: And then, I mean, the competitiveness, just beating the guys that, that have been trying, I mean, yeah, well, You can get it, but I mean, for that one, it's it's actually, whoever gets it, um, I mean, first of all, they're very lucky, and then second of all, no one knows where the snake fits in on um, like the phylogeny or the genetics. There's no genetic sample for the snake. So for science, whoever finds the next one and is able to take a tail tip or scale or, I mean, hopefully they find a dead one, so there can be another one in the museum, but... Um, it would be a very, very important um, find for science in general.
1: Yeah, how does that go? You know, say we found 5-1 in five of them in 20 years or something, right? And then a herpetologist, in order to do proper research, you have to euthanize the animal. I mean, what is the, like, it what's the situation <laughs> there? Like, do you, do you always euthanize the animal in order to do proper research or would you let it go depending?
0: No, so so it depends, Um, like with me working on the Natal black snake, there are a lot of them in the museums, Um, so there's a lot of specimens to work on. The only thing with with the specimens in the museums, you can't um, do genetics on them because a lot of them are preserved in formalin, so formalin destroys the genetics. So you need fresh tissue, so for them you can just go and take um, a small um, ventral scale or a tail tip um, and you can do your genetic analyses, and then you can go back and look at other specimens uh, for the morphological analysis. But something like like this, um, the Montaspers, um, we don't have genetics for them. Um, we only have five specimens in the museum. Um, we don't know anything about how the snake works, um, how many there are, how big the population is. And the main reason we don't know is because the habitat is just inaccessible. Um So by being able to uh, kind of well work on the snake, you are, you are I mean it's it's I, sometimes I don't like it either to euthanize something cool that I found um, and I don't euthanize so many but it kind of needs to be done for the science and why now, for example, like the black snakes that I've working on, because there are so many in um, museums and things, and like a lot of these are roadkill, and this is where roadkill and citizen science can be an important factor, because you've got all these things that you can work on. Um, and so now we don't have to collect anymore. We've got all these specimens. So, yeah, I mean, specimens are very important for science. So you, at some point, you're gonna to have to have specimens in a museum so you can work with it. And I mean, I've had comments where people tell me, "Well, why don't you just work on a live snake?" It's not that easy to count um, a million scales like down the body on live snakes. Yeah, you kind of need those references um, in the lab or in the museums and so on. But yeah, I mean, for a rare snake like that that we not, 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 know nothing about um it's very important to get those genetic samples so that you can um I mean know where the snake goes, you can know more about it. you can know more about its ecology by looking at maybe things that it's more closely related to. Um, and even so you might even find new habitats um uh based on these this knowledge where it could possibly be and by that you can set up a profile, set up a range, um and you can do like IUCN assessments. Um Basically, how threatened it would be, or endangered status, and so on. Um, just by finding out more about it, but now we know nothing. We don't know if it's endangered. We don't know how rare it is. Um, just because there are just too few samples to look at.
1: And have you gotten the opportunity to get into its habitat?
0: Uh, no, <laughs> I've been. I've been planning on making a trip there. Yeah, and there. I've like mentioned it to some of my good friends. Um, but no, I've been I've been there quite well, close to it when I was a kid before I even knew the snake existed. Um but you know let's see maybe after my while excursion um, I could come back with some money and plan a trip.
2: Sell that Lam- sell that Lamborghini and get someone to get, get your that hair. oil
0: money up there. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yourself a snake. That's awesome, man. So if anyone wants to reach out with you, check
0: you out on social media, where can they find you? Um, I think the easiest would be Instagram, um, so bush underscore car. And I mean, I've got a little Facebook page going as well. Um, so you can just search my name, uh, Theobushal. I think you know, it's called something like that. <laughs> um, but you'll find it. I'm learning the only Theobushal, so you'll find my page there. Uh, so basically there I'll just uh, share some of my research, um, share some photos and maybe some cool things that I've seen or whatever. I haven't been paying too much attention to that just because Instagram and the phone is so much easier. Uh, but yeah, definitely Instagram. Um, I mean, it's quite easy. I get the messages on my phone.
1: Perfect. And as far as we go, portcitypythons.com, Port City
2: Pythons on Facebook,
1: Port City Pythons on Instagram. Uh-huh. It sounds like we planned this. Yeah,
2: like <laughs> hundred plus times. We
1: we also have, well, we will have animals available shortly. Of course, Patreon sees our animals hatch first. So, if you're interested in that, and we're also going to have Patreon exclusive, uh, you know, animals and stuff like that, different things. And we're trying to create more content just to keep you guys in the loop as well as just getting the corn snake love out there into the universe. Corn snake love. Yeah, that sounds lame, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs>
0: <So lame. laughs> um,
2: but thank you, Theo, for coming on. Um, And sitting through fire alarm noises to talk to us and everything. I'm sure it was much louder for you than it was for us. Um, (laughs) Thankfully, it stopped kind of early in the podcast. Um, And thank you for everyone who listened and who will listen on the audio version later. We will see you guys next week.